couple of years ago, I began studying at what I felt was the prompting of the Spirit and preparing a series of messages on surviving storms within our life. As I had gone through some of the outlines that I thought we would develop, I felt the Lord just say, somebody's car's honking. That's not what the Lord said, but that's, <laughs> that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> that there's a time and a place, and I set these aside, and then at the beginning of the year when we were beginning to plan some things, it became very obvious that there was going to be a season when this was going to be important. And today I would like to start a series that will go for the next six weeks or so. Now, interrupted in this will be Mother's Day and, and some other things. And, but uh, today we're going to be talking about why do storms strike our life? Why do storms strike our life? Next week we're going to be talking about staying steady in the storm. Other topics will be bringing purpose to the storm and staying faithful in the storm, victory in the storm, and then rebounding from the storm. These will be some of the things that we're going to be addressing over these next few weeks. There's a passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 43 verses 2 and 3 that I would like you to turn to if you would. Kind of give us an idea as we begin to launch these thoughts. The scripture declares that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Have any of you passed through the waters lately? When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, for those of you that may be here this morning and He's not your Savior, you're in the right place today. Because before the service is over, you will be able to lay hold of this scripture and make this declaration that today he is your savior as well. I get a kick out of Sunday mornings. I have an office that's out here on the parking lot, so I get to open my blinds and I watch you as you're coming in. And I enjoy watching because we have a diversity of cars that come into our parking lot and a diversity of the ways that you like to park. Some of you pull up and then you back in and then you look and then you pull out and you back in and you pull out and you back in. And some of you, when you get out, you, you turn around and you look at your car to make sure that you're right in the center of the two spots. Others of you just don't care. I see cars driving in that are sedans and family vans that pull in and big pickup trucks that when they come by my windows rattle a little bit. I wouldn't want to pay your gas bill. Occasionally there's this really, really big flatbed truck that comes in and he'll go all the way up and kind of pull way up into the mud on the top of the hill. But if that's the way he wants to come to church, let him come to church, bring your flatbed truck. Seen some of your cars, you come in and they're rusted a little bit. We live in upstate New York. Everything's going to rust. Even plastic can rust here. <laughs> Scratched, dented, relics. Some of you come in with car parts that aren't the same color as the original parts on your car. Saw one that drove in that has a bumper sticker that says, My other car's a Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. I don't know if I believe that. Saw another one come in that says, My other car's a piece of junk, too. I believe that one. I believe that. 
And it becomes quite evident to us that we enjoy freedoms and tastes as it relates to the cars that we drive and the things that we drive. We enjoy that freedom. And it might seem like a little liberty, but if every one of us had to drive a purple Prius, we would get ticked off. We like our freedoms in being able to choose the cars that we want. I also wish that all of you had a chance to look at the different fashion tastes that we have on Sunday mornings when we when we come to church because it's it's pretty fascinating from time to time because we have the Macy's crowd we have the old navy crowd we have the ripped jeans and t-shirt crowd we have the suit and tie crowd we have the thrifty shopper and garage sale crowd we have high fashion we have low fashion and we have no fashion. <laughs> but you try to take away the ability of each of us to have the freedom to choose what we want to wear, and you would run into some trouble. We like our freedoms. And then there's the different tastes that we have, and it's evidenced by the different restaurants that we have, because some people like family-style restaurants, others like sit-down and very low-light type of restaurants, and we have different foods. We have different vacation styles. Some of you, the highest uh, vacation you could have would be in a tent in the middle of nowhere having to cut your own wood. Others of you think that is not vacation at all. It's got to be a hotel on a beach. Some of you need mountain fresh air every morning and all different kind of preferences that we have and recreational preferences and vocational preferences. And we have some great laughs at the choices that we make, but the, laughing, the laughter would stop instantly if somebody were to tell you that you no longer had the freedom to choose the things that you liked in your life. We would get a little bit hot about that because we fight for our freedoms and we have fought for our freedoms and we love our freedom. Even us no-fashion people love the freedom to have no fashion. We are Americans, and we are intoxicated with the ability to choose what we want to choose. And the mere thought of living without freedom is paralyzing to us. But I wonder how many of you have considered lately the fact that our freedom to choose was conferred upon us as a gift from the gracious hand of our Creator God. God could easily have decided when he created us, to install a software package within us that would, have a want, that would have allowed each of us to want the same things. And he could have made us each to be compliant and cooperative and courteous and kind and righteous and benign and boring and predictable and robot-like. He could have done that. He could have programmed us with built-in desires for proper values and behavior patterns that are built into us and so that we would make the right relational choices and the right vocational choices and absolutely no choice of freedom within the matter. And those of us who are freedom lovers, we look at them and we're going, oh man, I would hate that if God had created us that way. And it doesn't sound good to us because we love our freedom. And so God decided to make a deliberate choice 
to invest something in all of us that is called the high risk of the gift of freedom for those that he has created. And man, we are free. And it feels good. I thought I'd get a bigger amen out of that. This I, just, I, I had higher expectations for your response. I hope you wake up before the morning is over. He gave us minds and he gave us wills and intellect and different tastes. He gave us a level, a level of autonomy that is downright spooky when you look at it from the perspective of God. And just as God gave us the right to make correct choices and good choices and righteous choices, he also gave us the right to make some really bad choices, to make sinful choices and selfish choices. He even gave us the right to turn our back on him if we want to. We can ignore God if we desire. We can reject him. We can dismiss him. And he even allows us the freedom to state to anyone who will listen that I don't even believe that God exists if we want to. Because he's given us the freedom to do that. And so with all of the choices that you can make, God has given in you and invested in you the high-risk gift of freedom. Call in the Garden of Eden, God carefully explained after he created the first two individuals what the cost of this freedom could be for them in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And we, are, we find recorded for us that says, The Lord commanded the man, You are free. I love that. You are free. To eat of any good tree in the garden. Now, I want you to understand that when I picture the Garden of Eden, I picture millions and millions and millions of great trees. Millions of great choices. You're free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So God even went so far as from the very beginning to begin to warn, man, I'm giving you the ability to make choices here, but I want you to know that out of all of the millions of good choices you could make, if you make the one bad choice, there's going to be consequences that will be beyond your ability to fully understand. And then he looked at them and said, you are free. Choose how you want. Now, for those of you that have read anything about Genesis, you know that this did not turn out well. When they faced their first big test of how they would steward their freedom, they flunked it miserably, and the rest is now history. Because what was once a sin-free earth now became a sin-stained earth. What was once a sin-free society has now become a sin-tainted society. What was once a sin-free relationship with God is now a sin-tainted relationship with God that would require the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring a cleansing to us from the bad decision that was made. And what I want you to understand this morning is that everything changed 
at the fall of mankind. And, and this is amazing to me because after the fall, after everything changed, mankind still retained his freedom. You would think that God going, oh, you know what? I, I, I misread this one. I'm going to change some things up. I'm going to reprogram. I'm going to recreate things. Nope. He said, listen, here's the deal. I told you what would happen if you made a bad decision. And now the whole earth and the universe and the cosmos is now marred by sin and evil. Yet God still chose not to revoke our freedom at that moment in time. Rather than reprogramming us, he said, okay, let's let this play out. Let's see what's going to happen. And today you and I live in a, in a time where the game is different. Sin and evil have entered into the equation now because of the bad choices of free people. But even today the Lord says, let's let this play out. He says, under my sovereign ultimate watch care, let's just let it play out. And let's see what the rest of humanity will do with the high risk investment called freedom. And some of you today are wondering... What in the world does this have to do with storm stories? Hang with me. I'm getting there. Because this morning, over the next few moments, I would like to take my place on the witness stand. And today I want to defend to you the character of a very, 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 very good God who gets blamed for a lot of things that he had nothing to do with. I would like the whole courtroom this morning to rethink this, criti this critical question. Why do storms strike our lives? I think a lot of people are carrying around in their hearts secret grudges, private unspoken accusations, stomach-wrenching doubts about the character of a good and loving and caring God. For me, it entered into my mind many times, but I can particularly remember the moment when my mother died at a too young of an age of cancer. And I stepped back and I said, what are you doing, God? Why is this happening? For others, you begin to doubt God when they're the orchestration of a bankruptcy of a company that you work for puts families out of work and you step back and you go, what are you up to, God? Some of you have had doubts about God when you've seen your families fall apart because one spouse was unfaithful to the other and you're going, Lord, what is happening here? How could you do this? Or we begin to question the character of a good God when we see people that we know and we love that are long-term suffering and we don't think they deserve it. And we sit back and we're going, what is going on? And we begin to harbor doubts in our heart and our mind about the character of a good God. In fact, if we're being totally honest, every one of us at one time or another have questioned how good God really is as it relates to our life. And if you were listening online today, chances are you probably have had those moments in time as well. When you have wavered in your faith in God during times when storms struck your life, have any of you like me had those wavering times? Yes. I knew I wasn't the only one here. In the time I have remaining this morning, I want to tackle the question of why do storms strike our lives? Or maybe the better question is, who is responsible for the storms that strike our lives? 
There's an outline in your bulletin if you would like to follow along and maybe jot down some notes, but I, I have to warn you that you're going to need to hold your breath for the first one because it's not going to be pleasant. I want to inform you this morning that you cause a sizable number of the storms that strike your life. The first reason is self-inflicted storms. Some of you today are living in the consequences of storms that have wreaked havoc on your life because you too chose some very bad choices. You used your freedom to make some decisions that were not very good and you are suffering today and you're bobbing in the wake of some bad decisions and this was a self-inflicted storm. I went fishing several years ago with four pastor friends and we were on a boat that was a hundred and some feet long and there were 40 of us on it and we went for a three-day cod fishing trip out of Montauk. We went up into the Gulf of Maine and we loaded every cooler we had with cod. On the way back, we got caught in a storm with 18-foot swells. You know what a boat smells like when every person on the boat gets seasick? You don't want to know. I may never eat cod again. I remember getting home and Cindy was glad that I made it safely and I went right to the bed and I lay there and I, I, it didn't matter whether I opened my eyes or closed my eyes, the whole room is just. And I remember telling her, oh honey, I'm sick. My gracious and kind and loving wife in this particular instance looked at me and she goes, you chose to go fishing, dude. How many of you have ever got a speeding ticket? How many of you were really speeding when you got your ticket? Okay, you're different than the first service. The first service, half the people's hands went up. There were more people that raised their hand for deserving a speeding ticket than admitted they got one in the first place in this service. I want you to know something. God did not put his foot on your foot and slam the accelerator down. You brought that one on yourself. Now, through the years being in ministry, here are some of the things that I have heard. A person who smokes two packs of cigarettes a day for 30 years, and when the doctor tells them they have lung cancer, they shake their fists. God, why did you do this to me? What are you doing to me? I can't believe that you would do this to me, God. Young person who never learned financial discipline and never learned how to live within their means, they run out and run unbelievable debt up on credit cards to the point that when they finally get old enough to be able to think about buying a house, the credit look at them and say, no way, we're not loaning you any money. And they sit back and go, God, what are you doing to me? Why are you destroying my life? What are you doing? I, I paid tithes from time to time and I gave offerings. Married couples that choose to defy all of God's commands and counsel on how to build a strong, healthy marriage on the foundation of the word. And then when one develops an unhealthy attraction to someone else and the whole family blows up, the family looks and says, God, I'm shaking my fist. How could you do this to my family? Why did you do this to my family? Young adult falls in love and marries somebody because they look good on their arm even though they had ignored the spiritual counsel of finding somebody that they had like faith with. And as they get into marriage, they begin to discover that leading them to Christ was not as easy as they thought when they say, you know what, we're married now, I don't want to hear about this anymore. And the person shakes their feet, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you making life 
so hard for me. I acknowledge that you exist. I trusted you that you would allow me to lead her or lead him to Christ. Why are you doing this? And eats junk food for 30 years, shuns workouts, exercise, doesn't take care of their body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. A medical condition arises and they yell, God, why did you do this to me? Can't believe that you would do this to me. And I could list hundreds of accusations over the years that people had made that they were so busy blaming God for the storms that struck their life that they never stopped to think that the truth be told, the storm they were battling was self-inflicted. Parents that say, you know, Lord, we brought our kids to church when it was convenient and there was nothing else fun coming. And now I don't understand why they don't want to live for you. Why are you doing this to my family? Because we bring storms into our own life by the choices that we make. And honestly, I believe that there are a lot of people here today that need to apologize to God for some of the things that you have blamed him for. As you retrace your life, Many of the things that we have faced have been self-inflicted. And when they are, we need to quit blaming God and start saying, I am sorry for what I have done to you, and I'm sorry for the things that I have blamed you for because I did these things, not you. And after doing that, we then need to change the course of our life that we have been sailing on and change the direction so that you're not leading yourself into storms. And you will be astounded at the difference in the way things go in your life when you start following obediently to the one who said, I will lead you and guide you and direct you if you'll listen to me. Here's what I've learned. I have learned that when I am caught up to date on reading the Word of God, When my prayer life is up to date and I've obediently obeyed him, I have discovered I don't have as many storms in my life. It's amazing. Because I've discovered that God does not lead us into many of those situations. But we certainly like to lead ourselves into a bunch of those. And so I would like you to give some thought today to the storms of your life and realize that some of you are just suffering the consequences of some storms you led yourself into. And it's time to apologize to God. Second things that cause storms in our life is natural calamities and accidents. For those of you that ever actually read your homeowner's insurance policy, any of you ever do that? You actually read it? You'll notice... There's a thing in parentheses of the things they don't cover that are called Acts of God. That is a horrible title. I don't like that term. I think they need to change the terminology, but people wouldn't buy the insurance if it said Acts of Sin. Here's what I'm getting at. If you look in Genesis... In the Garden of Eden, you will notice that there is no description of hurricanes or tornadoes or floods or earthquakes. By the way, the earthquake that hit Ecuador, we've got news that the Andersons are all right. There's no mention of earthquakes in the Garden of Eden because before the fall of man, these things never happened. That wasn't God's design. You see, things that God created for us were from his best intentions. But because of Adam and Eve's abuse of freedom, the rebellion against God, one of the consequences was the infiltration of evil into the natural order of our earth system. 
and not just our earth system, but into the universal system. The whole earth, the whole space, everything that's out there was infected by sin and evil. And here's where we know this. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3 and verses 17 through 19, and let's begin to look at what the Scripture says. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, that you must not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. As a result of that, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. The next time you prick your finger on a thorn on a rose, it wasn't the way God intended it to be because those came as a result of sin. Lousy Adam. You will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, you are dust as you are, and dust you will return. Now, the scripture tells us that the earth is now suffering the effects of the curse of sin. We have oftentimes, listen, we have oftentimes thought that when we choose sin, when we make bad decisions, that the only thing it affects is our life. Well, we, I've heard it many times. I'm just making, the only person this affects is me. I want you to understand the depth of the power of sin of Adam who made one bad decision with his wife and the whole earth is cursed as a result of it. Everything changed for us. That's how pervasive sin is as it entered in to earth. So we're now living on a world that is covered and tainted in the sin that was committed. And I want you to examine another passage of Scripture with me in light of this curse and see if it doesn't shed some light on what we are seeing in our world today in Romans chapter 8. In verses 20 through 22. The Bible says, for the creation, now to get a a firm understanding of this, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and even into the first verse of chapter 2, you will notice that that is what God is talking about here. For the creation, everything that he has created. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, this wasn't the earth's decision to be in this condition. It was infected by sin because of the decision that was made in the garden by the people who had the free choice to do what God said or not to. And as a result of that, the earth is now infected in this sin and even the earth is dealing with the frustration of not being able to live to the fullest of what God has created it to be. And it goes on to say that it is looking for the day when it can be liberated from its bondage of decay We know that the whole creation has been groaning as the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In other words, the decision of their free choice has affected even the earth today. We are living on a decaying planet. That is how pervasive sin was when it came in. And so when we really look at this, who really is behind all these acts of God? that are on your insurance. Interesting, isn't it? Listen, most theologians that I know and read of 
believe that God created the universe to operate in a natural laws that he has created. He created the earth and there, there are laws that we all abide by, laws like gravity and motion and inertia and friction and, and most theologians agree that God allows a tremendous amount of freedom within those laws of nature and how they operate. In other words, yes, God created the realm of nature. He created the realm of which things work. And yes, God arranged all of the laws to function within that realm. And yes, God daily sustains what takes place within that realm. And yes, God even at time interrupts uh, natural law from time to time. And we call those miracles for his own divine purposes. But for the most part, God has created the earth and allows it to function within the laws that he has created. What I'm driving at is this. How many of you remember a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday when it snowed on a Sunday? I'm going to admit something to you. I opened my window and I said, God, how could you? Don't you know snow is always better on a Monday? Let me tell you what happened that day. Deeply theological. You you don't think I can be deeply theological? Here it is. A cold front came down from Canada. It blew right right across Lake Ontario. And it collected moisture from the lake. And it went up into the clouds and it got so high that it was cold up there. And so the water froze and got so heavy that the clouds couldn't hold it. And as the clouds blew over land, it got so heavy it fell on us. Gravity pulled it right out of the sky and it landed on the lands and the buildings and the cars of the people that lived there. And guess what? We chose to live here. We call this home. So when I say, God, Monday's always better for snow, he says, you chose to live there. Got natural laws at work. It's merely functioning in the way the master designed it to function. Years ago when Cindy and I were youth pastors in a town called Holdridge, Nebraska, we we used to take our students uh, in our youth group and we would go to Colorado and we would go skiing for spring break. I also discovered there's something called the law of gravity. And in teenage boys there, it's not a written law, but it's called the law of ego. And so we had a boy in our youth group who was a big football player type and thought pretty highly of himself. And we're skiing along there, and he sees these girls out there skiing along. that He thought they need to see how talented he is on skis. So as he's flying down the hill and the laws of gravity and his six foot three, 260 pound body turns around with a little ego and he looks at the girls going, hey, you see me? And he hit a mogul that he didn't see. And he ended up right on his rear and the back of his head and his neck and his shoulder. And that night he's laying there in pain and he's going, why is God ruining my spring break? Why is God doing this to me? I said, Toby, this was not God, dude. You made a really, really bad decision. The natural law of gravity and your teenage ego do not mix well when there's pretty girls around. Not God's fault. Now, does God ever 
intervene in the natural order? Absolutely. And there have been a few times that he has, but like I said, we call those miracles, and I don't have time to get into those today. So why do storms strike our life? Because the freedom that we love so much and crave so much places us sometimes in conflict with God's natural order, and sometimes things happen. And then thirdly and lastly, why do storms strike our lives? Because sometimes you are in the direct line of a satanic attack. Most of us have read and calculated the physical attack that was made on God's servant Job and the storm that was in his way almost wiped him out physically, almost wiped him out spiritually. But he survived the storm. Even though the storm took his possessions, it took all of his children, which is more than I can even begin to comprehend, took everything that he had, took his homes, took his health, this is like the ultimate storm story because each of us may at times go through pieces of this that we, we struggle with, but he went through it all simultaneously. Now, there may be people that you know that it just seems for whatever reason they go through more storms than you do. There are people I look at and I'm going, man, something is always happening to those folks. And we have a hard time sometimes classifying all of that, but... I want you to understand that as you read the Bible, you will discover that sometimes you have an enemy that sets traps for you. He does not like you because of who you have that lives within you. He does not like Jesus, and because Jesus resides in you through the Holy Spirit, he doesn't like you, and so you become an object of that attack. In fact, the Bible pulls no punches when he tells us in John 10, 10, this is what the enemy is like. He says this, the thief, this is who Jesus calls him, the thief. The thief, the evil one, Satan, only comes to kill and steal and destroy. And 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us, so be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is what he does. He is a chief liar. He is one that hates you. He does not want your life to go well. And because of the curse of sin on the earth, he has the freedom at times to put you right in the center of the crosshairs and try to blow your world up. And in the middle of some of that, people will sit back and go, God, why are you doing this to me? And they falsely accuse a very, very good God of causing a storm in their life when Satan planned it and schemed it and has been working it out to try to ruin you. And as a result of that, some of you have been holding secret grudges. And you have blamed a loving, merciful, good God for the things that are happening in your life. I look at this and I think this may be Satan's greatest deception ever. That he can attack you and have you blame God. And you look and you go, why are you doing this, God? And Jesus said, read the rest of the verse in John 10.10. 10. Because here's what it says. He demonstrated that there's two agendas that are abundantly clear. Satan destroys, but God has come that they may have life and have it to the full. How many of you are ready for some full life? Hallelujah. This is God's design for you. This is God's plan for you. And I wonder this morning how many of us need to pause and take a moment and apologize to God for blaming him for every little thing that goes wrong in our life. How could you, Lord? I can't believe that you hate me so much. 
You're pointing your voice the wrong direction. There are people that you know that won't give God the time of day because they're accusing him of things he didn't do. And there are some people that you know that you are around, some of them in your family, some of them in your workplace, and you need to have them go online and listen to this message this week so that they can begin to turn their focus not from a God who loves them and cares but to an enemy who is attacking them and wants to destroy them so that they can get it straight in their head that this is not God that is doing this. Because today I want you to know that we serve a good, good Father. We serve a good, good God who loves us. He tells us in Scripture again and again and again how good He is. In fact, I have a few verses that we're going to put up on the board. And when we get to the word good, I want you to lift up your voice and shout it with me that He's a good Lord. Let's begin with Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is Oh, let's do that one again. Taste and see that the Lord is Oh, hallelujah. The next one, Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord. The next one. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is. Do you believe that this morning? That his steadfast love is good. The next one. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Oh, hallelujah. And the last one, Psalm 86, 5. You are forgiving and good, O oh Lord, abounding in love to all who call you good. I want you to stand with me this morning. We're going to sing, He's a good, good Father. Oh, hallelujah. Let's celebrate You're today. You're a good, good Father.